listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 192. In this edition, we are talking with the current and former president of SEIU Local 26 in Minneapolis on the heels of the big rally that they held out there about what it's like organizing in Minneapolis in that famous swing state and what they're looking forward to in the coming year. But first, the news. The latest report on global inequality by Oxfam, released this week to coincide with the gathering of the world's ultra-wealthy at the World Economic Forum in Davos, confirms much of what most listeners of this podcast already know, that much of the world's wealth is extraordinarily concentrated among a tiny population of extremely rich elites, thanks to anemic regulation of the economy, regressive corporate taxation systems, and the virtual capture of state institutions by powerful moneyed interests. But this year's analysis of global inequality adds a gender dimension to our frame of the world's vast wealth divide. Consider this fact. Just 22 billionaires possess more wealth than all the women in Africa. On top of the huge class divisions we see between and within countries, women are systematically impoverished through a gendered economic hierarchy that compels women around the world to contribute billions of hours of unpaid labor, usually household-based work and childcare, every single day. Even in the US, domestic labor is structurally undervalued and degraded, whether it is performed by mothers working in their own households or people working outside the home in the highly gendered, low-wage vocations of domestic and home care workers. We speak with Oxfam America's Gawain Kripke about how gender inequality intersects with economic inequality today. A lot of what Oxfam has been trying to point out is that the economy is not working very well. Poverty is not being reduced as fast as we think it should be. And at the same time, wealth is being increasingly concentrated at the very top of the economic pyramid. But one of the things we also wanted to show is that what we think of as the economy isn't really the reality and that there's lots of pieces missing in what we think of as the economy that help to frame the inequality that we see. And a big chunk of it is the unpaid and unrecognized labor that mostly women do in providing care for families and communities. And that this is a big problem because if we don't measure it, we don't recognize it and we don't support it, we're not really seeing the whole picture of the economy and of all the work that people are doing around the world. So gendered work and overall subjugation of women in many cases is, um, is not accounted for because it's unpaid. That's right. It's unpaid and therefore unrecognized uh, by most policymakers and by economists. And there's very little support for it. And the economy uh, undervalues it and also undervalues what is seen as women's labor generally. The, the care economy is mostly unpaid. It's mostly women working at home, taking care of sick people, the elderly, children, making sure everybody has food and basic hygiene and so forth. And by, by tradition, we just think of this as the natural thing that women do. But of course, it's actual work. It's real work that people do, mostly women. And you can pay someone to do it, but we rarely do because we just expect women to provide this work. And at the same time, the paid workers that we, that we employ in the economy are paid extremely poorly. They're treated as helpers rather than formal employee, employees. The work is, is tough and with very high injury rates and 
uh, very low pay, very low uh, reliability for the for the workers. So the care economy is very neglected. Most of it is unpaid, and what we pay is is treated very poorly. And this provides a subsidy to the more formal economy. All this work that gets done, society and the economy wouldn't function without this work. And so we don't pay for it, but we rely on it. Businesses rely on it. Families rely on it. Societies rely on it. And yet we don't recognize it and don't compensate it and don't support it. Yes. So women's labor is basically provided for free as a subsidy to the economy generally and especially to men. People who, you know, are familiar with your report that comes out every year, um, they look at the top line figures that look at these enormous disparities between wealthiest people in society and like the bottom couple of billion, right? So how does adding the dimension of gender help us understand maybe the nature of that inequality, um, not just in terms of the very extremes, but um, also how it plays out in our everyday lives? We feel it's not a coincidence that it's mostly men at the very top of the economic pyramid. Nine out of 10 billionaires is a man. And at the same time, women are providing, mostly women are providing all this unpaid work into society. And there is a nexus between the two. So to use a somewhat heated term, but this is, this is what patriarchy is. It ignores and makes invisible women and exalts and elevates uh, rich men. So there's a logic to it. And we think it's important to start uncovering it and uh, dismantling that logic. That was Gawain Kripke of Oxfam. The New York City Council is a legislature bigger than that of many states, and that means there's a huge number of legislative staff that make sure all sorts of things get done on time and properly. That also means that some of those staffers have a variety of different working conditions, ranging from the very good to, well, pretty bad. And recently, those staffers decided to do something about it. Specifically, they decided to form a union. This is an interesting story, both because it's fairly rare for legislative staff to organize, and also because they decided, due to their relationships with various New York City unions who come before the city council for various issues, to actually create their own independent union. I spoke to staffer Zara Nasir and Indigo Washington about their organizing process, why they're going independent, and what other workers can learn from their fight. So for people who don't live in New York and sort of aren't familiar with the New York City Council, tell us a little bit about it, about how many people, what the turnover rates are, things like that. So there's 15 members of the City Council, and, you know, this is a ginormous legislative body if right. you look at it, uh, obviously, in comparison to other other smaller city legislatures. You know, we've been in contact with, with folks in Jersey City, and we know, like, uh, staff analysts who have, who have unionized in Berkeley. The, just the sheer size of the council is a big thing. So we have 51 members. Each of those members probably has, um, I would say, like, seven to eight staff. Um, mm-hmm. Give or take, some of them have a lot less. Like we know a member who has three. Uh, yeah. We also know a member who has ten part timers, two full timers, like a lot of staff, right? So people, yeah. uh, members have a lot of discretion on how to spend money on their staff and what to pay them, etc. In addition to that, so you have like the fifty-one members. The most important member is is obviously the speaker, right? And the speaker is kind of um, equivalent to like the president of, of a city council in a, in another body. Um, the speaker in, in the New York City Council has, like, basically the, the largest staff because the speaker also has what's called central staff. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of like the infrastructure of the council. They draft bills. 
they do the um, analysis on the budget, um, the finance from the finance analysts. They are, you know, at uh, their community engagement folks who who represent the speaker at various events. There's a comms team over there. There's sergeant in arms. There's like a very vastly diverse group of staff who also just specifically work for the speaker. And you know, like I think what's interesting about the council and also just about organizing the council is there is this kind of uh, two sides of the council is really important to understand because mm-hmm. the speaker side, um, at least as of late, has had better pay, better benefits, has gotten COLA every couple of years, has more standardized policy when it comes to, you know, minimum salaries, uh, flex time, yeah. uh, comp time, yeah. vacation time, like everything is kind of standardized on that side. And then on the councilmanic aid side, uh, councilmanic aides are the folks who, who work for the council members. It's the wild west, right? It's right. like the council member kind of chooses what what, um, and it could be good, you know, like you could have a lot of vacation days, you could have better salaries, um, or it could be not great. It could be bad, right? Like you could have a member um, who doesn't like to pay folks well and, and doesn't have good um, vacation time, comp time, ex time policies. All of these folks, though. I think bottom line is all of these folks are at will. Mm-hmm. We are not protected by any grievance processes, central staff side or councilmanic aid side. And so that's kind of the thing that, you know, is is one of the issues that probably pertains to everybody. But there is this really important distinction between um, people who are on the councilmanic aid side and then people who work for Corey Johnson on the central staff side. In deciding to form a union, you guys um, ultimately went with the decision to form an independent union. Can you tell us a little about first about why you came to that decision? Sure. Well, you know, when it comes to in New York City, as Zara had articulated, when you look at New York City and the politics of it all, mm-hmm. we have a number of local unions who often have to come before city council seeking support for their contracts and or seeking support for legislation for their members. Mm -hmm. But we saw that as a conflict for them to be able to really um, advocate on our behalf. So we knew that a lot of the organizing work, you know, we could juggle and figure out how to do that on our own because we had already been doing a lot of the work ourselves with having conversations with staff, both in council offices as well as central staff. So we knew that there was an opportunity for us to at least capitalize on that work. So, you know, it was um, a dicey decision. We weren't, you know, sure, but we also were able to reach out and connect with um, another union and work with them and seek, you know, guidance and answers along the way. So, you know, while this might be a stab in the dark, we were really very excited about being able to do that because it also gave us a sense of independence where we wouldn't have to worry about, you know, a larger union taking over and, you know, dictating and telling us how to move. And so it gave us a little sense of freedom. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing, like, definitely, obviously, it, it put the impetus on us to organize. It put the impetus on us to yeah. um, do the work, right? Mm-hmm. But I think at the same time, um, we did feel like, I mean, I, I will, I'll just say, and, and we have, like, obviously a great respect for, for folks who run unions in, in New York City. We work with them all the time. But we were, I think, considered a little bit of a, uh, a, risk. a risk. I mean, I don't even yeah. think that that's, that's understating it, right? Like, we were a huge minefield, I think, for, for folks. And that's why we're not unionized. I mean, I think anybody who yeah. wanted 
to have unionized us, they would have done it, right? And, right, and that's key because we did, it wasn't like when we trying to do something back in 2016, we did go to a union and they turned us down for those very same reasons. So that was a big concern that we had to take into consideration and put us in a place where we could no longer delay. We knew we were up against the clock. There's some work that we have to get done. Mm -hmm. And so that was the main reason why we decided to go unaffiliated. Yeah, we have two years left of this term. <laughs> and we're not, we're not messing around. We're not wasting any time. This is a legacy project for a lot of people who have been right. working on this for frankly, not just three years, but probably over a decade. Um, we've gotten an outpouring pouring of support from former staffers who, who have been interested in this and have wanted to do this for a long time, but just didn't know how. And at first, I think like in the beginning, why it's taken us three years is because we were kind of waiting for potentially a union to be interested in us. And I think the day we realized that it just wasn't gonna happen, we really just decided that, you know what, we know our colleagues best. We know the things that we need in the council, and so we're we're gonna organize this thing ourselves. And we've been we've had a tremendous amount of help from um, a lot of friends <clears throat> in the labor movement. I you know yeah. definitely want to to acknowledge folks that like UAW, CWA, um, people who have given advice when they really didn't need to. They did you know they didn't need to take us um, under their wing at all and explain anything to us, but they did. And we were able to hire a law firm um, as well, and that's part of the reason why we're fundraising. But we, you know, we feel like we are obviously it's it's something that has been done in New York City for a long time, and it's just something that doesn't happen very often anymore. But we do feel like we've had advice and support along the way. Well, that was Zara Nasir and Ndigo Washington, staffers at the New York City Council and part of a new union drive. If you had the chance to completely change the rules about how we work in this country, you'd probably end up with something that looks pretty different from the National Labor Relations Act, the law that has been governing workplaces and labor relations since the mid-20th century. A 21st century labor law would reflect how the world has changed since then. More diverse types of workers, different ideas about managerial authority and workers' power, a different sense of civil rights at work, and, for progressives at least, different standards about what it should take to establish a union and provide adequate protections for the right to organize. And you could argue that our current labor law regime has been eroded by lobbying, by systematic attempts to undermine organized labor, and by the growth of corporate power through neoliberal economic policies. But a group of legal scholars is trying to think beyond the status quo to envision a new way of empowering workers. I talked to Ben Sachs and Sharon Block, the authors of a new report out called Clean Slate for Worker Power, Building a Just Economy and Democracy. And they have some ideas on how to overhaul labor law. They talk to people in the labor movement and draw on examples of labor policies around the world to create a framework that moves beyond our current majoritarian system of workplace representation and looks at institutions like workers' councils as well as sectoral bargaining, which might create a more expansive and dynamic system of representing and protecting workers' rights. We start from the recognition that the country is facing dual crises of political and economic inequality that are threatening working people's ability to survive, really, and also threatening um, our democracy. And so the question for, for Clean Slate has been, how would you, starting from a clean slate, design a labor law meant to empower all working people to build a more equitable economy and politics? And there are a few sort of broad conclusions that we reached. The first is that um, labor law needs to do a lot more, be a lot more ambitious uh, than it is today. And what's needed is not 
you know, things like changing the rules of NLRB elections. Uh, what's needed is a, is a fundamentally different approach uh, to labor law and labor relations. And that approach is that workers ought to have the right and the ability to countervail corporate power wherever corporate power impacts their lives. That means at the level of the workplace, at the level of the enterprise, at the level of sectors and industries in the corporate boardroom and in our democracy. Um, and so the the Clean Slate report is long and it's detailed, but the theory of Clean Slate is actually pretty straightforward. Um, it's that when working people have the capacity to build organizations of countervailing power, they can build for themselves a more equitable nation. And our, our task has been to, to set out a vision for what that kind of labor law would look like. You have initiatives in here that would cover large swaths of the workforce that are currently not covered by existing labor law. And these categories of workers that have historically been excluded, you know, that has had huge ramifications, not just for you know, our economy and who benefits from it, but also democracy in general. Um, so can you talk about some of the people who would be included in this who are not currently uh, covered as official employees under the NLRA? Sure. So the two biggest categories are domestic workers and agricultural workers. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that those exclusions have pretty explicit racist and sexist roots. It was part of the compromise when the, when the Wagner Act was passed in the 1930s that those categories be excluded in part because they were primarily people of color and women. Um, and so we think both for you know, reasons re- related to building democracy and a fairer economy, it's also just it's sort of a moral failing that sits at the center of our labor law that needs to be addressed and corrected. So that's the first part. But we really think about uh, about inclusion even more broadly. So as our economy has shifted over these decades, there are more people who are independent contractors now. They often work in or are treated as independent contractors. I try to be careful about that. Many of them actually are employees but are being you know, misclassified and treated as if they weren't. But we think that's another important um, aspect of making the law more inclusive and more fair, because many of those workers who are being misclassified because of the way that the law is developed to define employee under the National Labor Relations Act work in low-wage industries and are predominantly, again, people of color and women. And so, addressing that deficiency, that failing in the law also has important equity considerations. Right. But you are also considering the fact that um, the existing NLRA framework does not serve these groups of workers particularly well in terms of their ability to organize, right? So how would the framework that you're proposing build on the NLRA, but also be sort of outside of it so you could allow for um, the more horizontal grassroots ways that a lot of these groups in the farm sector as well as the domestic work sector are already organizing? Yeah, so that's a great question. And there are a bunch of of ways that the recommendations will facilitate that kind of work. So um, one thing, like the the currently pending Pearl Act, uh, we recommend uh, getting rid of the ban on so-called secondary activity. Um, That ban um, prohibits workers from uh, building the kind of horizontal power that that you've talked about. Um, the other, the other thing that another 
way that um, we sort of would dramatically expand the scope and reach of of um, bargaining coverage is by advocating for a system of sectoral bargaining, where you know workers uh, across entire industries uh, would be entitled to organize and collectively bargain with firms at the level of the sector. So instead of you know, trying to organize the McDonald's on 47th Street, we would have organizing uh, of fast food workers as a whole. Can you talk about how that would look in the U.S.? Because I think for people who do know anything about sectoral bargaining, they would tend to look to Europe as an example. How would the model in, in the U.S. be similar or different to that? Sectoral bargaining actually looks different in different European countries, but that it also exists very broadly even outside of Europe. So South Africa, sectoral bargaining in South America. It is really the predominant way that bargaining um, works outside of like the United States and Canada. Um, But we did, there is no particular country whose system we adopted. We didn't say, oh, let's do it the German way or the Nordic way. We looked at these different models, tried to learn what works within them, what doesn't work, and then also, as you're suggesting, think about how would that, how would it need to be adjusted to fit the existing sort of legal structure here outside of labor law um, and sort of the corporate and cultural norms. And so I think what we've come up with that, that probably is different than almost anywhere else is a system that's very integrated between trying to enhance and make more robust workplace organizing, because we think that is critically important, but that then links to these other sort of channels of worker voice, of worker power, both in the corporate boardroom, but then also at the sectoral bargaining table. And so it's a, it's a very integrated system, which may sound like the German system, but it's, but for us, we really thought that the organizing in the workplace was an important part of the American system to not just retain, but to enhance. You have also ideas about how to enhance enforcement, I guess, and you have a proposal for the system of workplace monitors and works councils, which reminds me of some European models of this, but how, as a worker, would the workplace dynamic change under the system that you're envisioning? How would a monitor work in terms of scaling that up and ensuring that there is like actually robust enforcement of you know both labor law as well as collective bargaining agreement rules? Sure. So yes, we see the workplace monitors playing an important role for just the reasons that you're talking about to be to be a greater safeguard against violations in the workplace, but also to encourage workers to begin to see how speaking up for themselves, standing together, can begin to build power. So it's sort of a a first step and an on-ramp to organizing in addition to being an important um, sort of enforcement tool. You know, the Works Council, again, is another, as you've identified, sort of another piece in that. It's a way of workers seeing how they can have a collective voice that can influence their workplace, you know, even before they get to the point where they've got, you know, full-blown union representation. I think we would see those systems working in parallel with, um, where where you do have exclusive representation, you know, traditional union representation where you would have a shop steward system. They're not mutually exclusive. But if you're looking at, if you're interested sort of in, in the enforcement side, the other piece that, that I would point out is the fact that we, refer, we recommend uh, moving to a just, just cause dismissal standard. 
I think it's really important for workers to feel as secure and confident as possible in exercising these rights. Um, and the at-will employment system that we have in the United States, as I'm sure you know, is fairly um, unusual around the world, um, is really an impediment to that and allows employers to sort of chill a lot of activity because workers just know it's so easy for an employer to come up with some kind of reason to say that they're being dismissed. And so it makes it really hard to assert rights, even if you're fairly certain that they've been, that they've been violated. In response to some of the um, deficiencies in the current labor law system, uh, there's been a rise in less formal, more grassroots worker centers and so-called alt-labor formations. What would happen to those groups under the system that you're proposing? Would they sort of be absorbed into this larger system and become more formalized worker organizations? Or would they continue in some way to sort of operate as they do now as kind of these you know, not quite union organizations that agitate in more flexible ways? That would be up to the workers. So there are there would be a greatly expanded set of legal resources available to all those formations. For example, if if one wanted to bar, do collective bargaining on behalf of their membership and their membership alone, they would have that right if they had 25% of a bargaining unit, they could become a members only union. But the all of the all of the expanded collective action rights for um, that we set out would be are available to everybody. You don't have to be a formal anything uh, to enjoy them. So, like intermittent strikes would be protected. That's something that we've seen uh, on the ground. You know, in the fight for 15, for example, um, we 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 learned a lot for, from the bargaining for the common good, folks, and uh, you know so. Uh, community groups now have would have community labor groups would now have a right uh, or an opportunity anyway to to sit at the bargaining table and discuss things like affordable housing. So nothing nothing would no one would be forced to do uh, in, into any formation, but they, we, there would be a, more, new resources available to all these groups. That was Sharon Block and Ben Sachs of the Harvard Labor and Work Life Program. Regular listeners to Belabored know that we take sports unions pretty seriously. It can be pretty easy to write off pro athletes as spoiled rich people, but the reality is that they have short careers and those who aren't superstars often put their bodies on the line for relatively little money. And of course, sports owners' fortunes make those of even their richest stars look paltry. And then there's all the time that athletes put in before they get to the big leagues, honing their bodies into finely tuned athletic instruments, suffering all sorts of injuries, and doing it almost all entirely for free. And all of this goes double for women athletes, who even when they reach the peak of their sports, make an order of magnitude less money than male athletes and still struggle to be recognized as equally talented to the men. So the WNBA's new contract is, of course, of interest to us, especially because, in the words of no less than the New York Times, quote, the WNBA and its players union have signaled a radical shift in how female athletes are to be compensated with a tentative contract agreement that would sharply increase salaries and provide generous maternal benefits in a move Commissioner Kathy Engelbert called a big bet on women, end quote. 
I don't know if I'd agree that it's a bet, considering A, the union fought and won this contract, and the players have busted their butts to prove how good they are. This is not exactly the league deciding to hand them a gift. As the Times notes, this win for this union also comes at a time when other female athletes are openly pushing for equal pay and conditions, most famously the U.S. women's soccer team, but also, as you've heard on Belabored, in women's hockey and elsewhere. So the women of the WNBA's winning of a pay ceiling of over $500,000 a year, which the Times notes is about triple last season's ceiling and far more than had ever seemed possible since the league's first season in 1997, it is a big deal. The Times continued, quote, under this deal, the maximum WNBA salary would increase almost 83% to $215,000 from $117,500. And while some people think that the players in pushing for better pay have been asking to earn the same multi-million dollar salaries as their counterparts in the NBA, my editorial comment on that is, why shouldn't they? But anyway... Times continues, the union's leaders have insisted that what they want is a comparable share of their league's revenue, which this agreement would allow. The NBA, it should be noted, splits revenue equally with the male players. The women get something less than 30%. They also won maternity leave with full salary, a dedicated space in their arenas for nursing mothers, and a $5,000 childcare stipend. No word if that's the whole season or per month or what. Not clear. Uh, they'd also be able to seek reimbursement for up to $60,000 in costs directly related to adoption, surrogacy, egg freezing, and fertility treatment. There's a lot more in the deal. We'll have a link to the full story at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. But I will just close by saying that athletes are expected to do their work for the love of it as much for much of their careers, and whenever they question those rules, they tend to be told to shut up and be grateful. This is, of course, a condition that many, many workers, many of you listening in today's economy, share. Yes, yes, I know I'm writing a book about it. And so for that reason in particular, the WNBA players' win is a win for working people and particularly for working women. Minnesota has been the home to a lot of innovative labor organizing in recent years and the center of some big important fights. From the current legal battle over Worker Center Situl, to the Awud Center's victories getting Amazon to the bargaining table, to the current campaign for fair contracts for 8,000 building service workers in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, and St. Paul, Minnesota has seen some important successes recently for working class people. This week, they held a massive rally demanding unions for all with Representative Ilhan Omar and thousands of workers, and we thought that was a good opportunity to check in with some of the organizers behind these struggles. First of all, let me have you both introduce yourselves. Um, hello, my name is Iris Altamirano, and I am the new president of SEIU Local 26. And I am Javier Morillo. I am the former president of SEIU Local 26. I uh, stepped down from that job in last June after leading the union for 14 years, and the union is now in the capable hands of Edis. <laughs> so we're talking this week because um, your union and a bunch of allies just had a big rally. Tell us about that and about the, the campaign that it's connected to. Yep. So the, the rally was on Tuesday, January 21st, where we, it was a, a whole bunch of workers that represent the property service industry here in the Twin Cities and about 400 of our closest friends. Um, and we actually were very fortunate to have Representative Ilhan Omar uh, join us and, and um, speechify along with Mayor Gonzalez Reagan, who is the first Latina mayor elected 
to that position here in Minnesota. So yeah, tell us a little bit about these these rallies. Minnesota in winter is not the place a lot of people might think they want to be at an outdoor uh, event. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, I always say, uh, you know, Minnesota is built for the cold. So in the winter, it is actually preferable yeah. to be in the skyways than out on the street. Um, yeah. But, you know, we um, go, and as I mentioned earlier, we, we started this tradition of marching in the skyways and, you know, really allowing for the workers to be visible. I mean, the, the workers that we represent are oftentimes not seen, right? Because, yeah. you know, lots of white collar workers or higher paid workers uh, in wage get to leave right at five. And that is exactly when our workers are coming in. And so the, the Skyway marches were very much part of our need and also our want to make our workers visible. And for a little background for yeah. not, folks not from Minnesota, the yeah. downtown Minneapolis and downtown St. Paul are both, the, the buildings are all connected to each other in these ways that it looks like to a visitor, like habit trails, um, like these tunnels. <laughs> um, and so back in 2006, the very first time I was negotiating a contract for the for the union, we had this this plan for marches indoor, uh, like, and so they these skyways, they operate as sidewalks, so they're thoroughways, like, so they are private property in the sense they are owned by the two buildings that connect each, each skyway, but they also serve a public purpose. And we basically kind of put up a flag that said, this is a public space. Even that's though we go through private yeah. buildings. And that <laughs> campaign in 2006, we had literally planned that like eventually we would, that we were, it was a, a planned escalation. First, it was a silent march. Um, where people wore smocks that with a message that said, because uh, it was ho the holiday time, it said, um, uh, don't be a, don't no, be a great. No, no, it was magical elves don't clean, clean your, your buildings, offices. Right. Uh, <laughs> janitors with families do. That's right. Um, there's a silent march and the next time we added bells and uh, like jingle bells and we fully expected to be arrested but that just never happened <laughs> it didn't and now it's a tradition that like literally we, we don't even this happens without us asking like i don't know if it happened this time it is but we started getting police escorts oh yeah we had the escorts we get police escorts through these marches so you basically march through all downtown but in, indoors through these skyways and so we decided that this this year we wanted to have a band with us and so <laughs> we had we had drums and we had like i mean the best marching beat um most people were like a parade and so joined us and you know it's really a, a way to to like javier said to escalate to make ourselves visible and then also um you know walk through the the buildings that we clean and protect both inside and out and also you know the buildings that we walk through make millions and millions of dollars right and in the end are receiving the services that that our workers provide and so you know this past march was very much a a march on the richest parts of of uh of downtown and saying you know what there's enough for all of us and and there is so tell us about what um you're going into bargaining for some 8000 building services workers right yes um so we represent 8000 workers and it's actually seven different contracts and so back in 2006 when you know Javier under Javier's leadership we started to um, wake up the union to become the mighty uh, union that it is today 
we had dreamt up aligning all of our contracts. We re- we have seven different contracts right. and um, having them all expire at the same time. And that time is now. And so most folks uh, have heard of our Justice for Janitors campaign and we are negotiating our Justice Janitors campaign, but we're also negotiating our retail janitors campaign, our security mm-hmm. campaign security officer campaign, um, airport window cleaners, our stadium workers and our block by block workers, which are the folks that kind of help in the downtowns to direct folks um, from getting lost pretty much. And so that probably took a while to, or a lot of work to get those contracts all lined up, but there's obvious reasons for wanting that all to happen at the same time. Can you tell people about that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is a value of ours as an organization to acknowledge that like not one worker can create change, not one sector can create change, and and honestly not one organization can. And so we had been dreaming this up knowing that it is to the benefit of not only the 8,000 workers that we represent in the Twin Cities, but all workers, right, to be able to to leverage each other in a way that is collective but also very strategic and so that's what we're doing right now and we have a lot of our friends that are are helping us do it and i'd say that that the kind of on the you know for for bargaining purposes it's to put you know greater leverage with workers um and also just in terms of organizing right that through line contracts what we do is try to build solidarity between different divisions of work which often are very different workers, right? So security officers tend to be male. It is a whiter unit. There's uh, probably a split, like uh, white and African and African-American, whereas the janitor's union is almost, is overwhelmingly immigrant. um, And having those two divisions and all across all these contracts, people committing to fight side by side is an inherent good, but also I think it gives the union greater leverage at the bargaining table because the downtown building owners know that in theory, potentially, right, they could be left uh, if there's a strike with no cleaning, no cleaners, no security, no nothing. And and in relation to our airport workers who, you know, have been fighting actually for a long, long time to get the little bit that we have there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is another big contract that we're negotiating now. Yeah. So what are your expectations? as you go into this uh, this campaign with this, as you said, this sort of show of power and these contracts now all aligned at the same time. Um, what are you expecting? What are some of the things that you're hoping to get in the next round of contracts? Well, we're expecting to win. You know, our, our, uh, our saying is uh, when we fight, we win. And, you know, just to give you an idea of something that we were able to land just last week with um, our event workers and, you know, the event work that we have and are actually recently started representing uh, is for the, the stadium work. So it's kind of the pseudo security, pseudo uh, cleaning work. But, you know, there's a lot of, of um, you know, football games and just games that need that need attention. And so we were able to land for these particular workers a $4.50 raise within the next two years. Yeah. And now, mind you, these are the same workers that just two years ago were yeah. at the Minnesota minimum wage of nine fifty. And okay. so, you know, this subset of security is seeing a wage increase and an hourly wage increase that 
that honestly seemed impossible and we did it and that's something that is landed signed and is actually serving as inspiration for the for the other workers to say wow you know what if they can do it we can do it and if that company and it's one of the smaller companies you know is showing that there's enough i mean you know these workers are by the end of the contract they're going to be making 17 dollars an hour and so it's it just it raised the bar and it also allowed for our workers to say you know what our dreams can become a reality and that's what we've been doing i would say every day since we started making this union you know what it is yeah i was struck by in the press release for the the rally in the march you said the workers have the right to live joyful lives and i like that for a lot of reasons but yeah i wanted to hear from from y'all maybe about why this particular word um when we're talking about what the workers can expect and, and are demanding so we um a few years back went through a process of a, a, a visioning process with a, with a, our, our leadership or and uh, and joy was a word that uh, we kept coming back to that I that I, I always wanted to, to to center because so we do this thing in bargaining where we have two lists one is what do, what are the things we deserve mm-hmm. and then the second list is what do we have the power to win yeah. and when we start writing the list of what do we deserve almost always the first thing that a member would says is respect. Um, and it always had such a big impact on me. And I would, and I would sort of nudge in our conversation and say, Hey, don't we also deserve to, you know, vacation on a beach, like, or do only the rich deserve that? Because I I think our society has, um, has, has got us self-censoring our own dreams. And so, so we have for years talked about joyful lives and, and it's joy as a right that we have as workers, that it's not that, that being, that leading a joyful life and having leisure, right? Because workers, yeah. no one works and, you know, loves their job so much that that's, you know, that's the reason for being. We do these things so that we can all have the things that, you know, like, so I don't have to have two jobs and I can spend time with my family, which brings me joy or read more or travel or what have you. And so that is the goal is the joy. That's, the, the raises and all the other work is in service of that. Yeah, I love that. I think one of the things that, you know, that we're seeing a lot of more conversations about sort of time. And as you were saying, you, you have these building service workers who are working these odd hours, these sort of difficult to like run a normal life around when you have to go in and clean the building when everybody else is gone or when you're working security overnight. It really is important, I think, to, to talk about your right to your free time and, and things you want to do when you're not working and your right to be seen as somebody who isn't just the worker who comes in at night. Right. And I think that that for the workers that we represent and, you know, overwhelmingly and, you know, have you had mentioned that we 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 represent all walks of life, but overwhelmingly we have um, workers from Latin America and Africa. So immigrant right. workers from these two particular areas of the planet and you know wanted to go back to your original question on what do we want and you know a lot of our demands are just really basic worker rights I mean both St. Paul and Minneapolis have passed city ordinances to allow for any worker in the within the city limits to have six sick days 
you know, a year. And I mean, to us, that's just very basic for our workers to have a living wage um, that will keep up with the rising cost of rent, you know, pretty soon with so much gentrification coming into the cities, you know, a low wage worker and even our workers for as much as they're making a little bit more than a non-union worker, they're still not going to be able to keep up and and stay with in the city limits. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we are also thinking much bigger than just ourselves. You know, Um, we're thinking about uh, living in a planet that isn't that's clean and safe for our children to live in. You know, we have language in our contract that we're trying to push, at least with the janitors, that would connect uh, some mobility for janitors to become green tech certified. Um, And that certification would include water conservation, energy conservation, which in the end is helpful for all of us, but also, you know, would help these very lucrative building owners um, in, uh, you know, some more tax breaks, but then also could reduce the carbon emissions that that they're putting into our earth. Our longtime podcast listeners have heard a bit about various different parts of the the Minneapolis, St. Paul sort of greater area labor movement. But tell us a little bit about sort of the scene there. You have a bunch of pretty impressive worker centers. You have a few pretty strong unions. um, And it seems like y'all kind of work and play well together, which is not always not always the case. Um, so tell us a little bit about more about the context that you all are organizing in. We've worked very hard to create a, a healthy ecosystem mm-hmm. um, that um, that has built capacity for different organizations at the same time. Right. And it was we did this under sort of a theory of movement building. So back in uh, 2010, 2011, SEIU had this national campaign called Fight for a Fair, uh, Fair Economy, mm-hmm. and it put a lot of resources into a bunch of different cities. And in Minnesota, we use those resources differently than every other SEIU city did. Mm-hmm. What we did was we created a table that eventually became, uh, we came to um, call Minnesotans for a Fair Economy. And it was a table of aligned organizations and that could faith-based organizations, Isaiah, uh, um, Setul, the worker, one of the worker centers that is, um, that is a, has become a big fighting, uh, a big powerhouse yeah. um, and others. And, and Setul at that time was an organization with two staff members. Um, and uh, what we did with the with SEIU resources was we uh, what often happens what unions do is like because we have more money than sometimes than other than other social justice organizations we sort of you know kind of bigfoot projects and say here's our plan you know sign up for it and we decided to do something different we what we did was we built a plan out with our partners and resourced it through collective decision making and created Back then, it was uh, we called a mobile team of researchers and communicators that literally went from campaign to campaign. And so it allowed an organization like Setul, which at the time had a campaign on the retail janitorial industry, which had horrible, horrible standards and are at a minimum wage back then. They were non-union, unlike the commercial office janitors that were members of Local 26. Um, it allowed Setul to do something like have a press conference and, um, de- and, and, and re- release a white paper on the standards of the cleaning industry in the retail sector. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, a small organization with two staffers does not 
normally have a communications department or research department that they were able to put that out under their name. The capacity that was built around said tool eventually, you know, eventually built them into a powerhouse organization. And that sector, the retail janitorial sector, those workers who back then were making like were making this uh, like it was actually it was like seven, uh, seven twenty five yeah. back then yeah. are now members of SAU Local 26 and are at the bargaining table that DDC is leading right now. Yeah. So what what we've done is to try to to nurture an ecosystem and yeah. work um, collectively uh, in ways that have allowed us to just win big things. We yeah. won big, big things you know, from defeating a voter ID amendment and other things. And, and so the the and Local 26 has really been a leader throughout the this and and that's what this current campaign I think is is really building on like the fact that we're that the union has all these issues about green cleaning and climate change on the table means mm. that allied organizations like the Sierra Club like the Minnesota 350 and all these that they were marching. <laughs> well, and you know who else is actually, um, we have our climate change checkers, um, which is a whole, 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 like, group of students who yes. clearly, you know, are motivated by the janitors and the security officers and the workers yeah. of Local 26 and um, have been partnering with us to figure out, like, how they can leverage some of their, their tools and our collective tools to be able to, to pressure from every angle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's really exciting. I wanted to um, share a couple of worker stories with you yes. that I think have served as the motivation, right? Like we, we are a union and we have done a lot of great things, but you know, for a work, for one of our workers, like a security officer uh, who was actually struggling with her housing situation. She has two girls and for the majority of last year was in shelters. She managed to piece together some money and uh, got her first, the security deposit in the first month's rent, but then second month's rent was tough. And so she had to sell her car to be able to pay her rent. And so, you know, this this still happens. Um, here's an, another story of, of a janitor who is one of our strongest leaders right now. So she is an Ecuadorian immigrant from a rural area. And for the longest, the land was fruitful and it was made so that one could sustain themselves off of the land. But over time, you know, climate change pushed her out of Ecuador and is now here in the Twin Cities um, working as a janitor and, you know, can see the, the, the connection of, you know, how her migration was connected to to how terrible we're being to our planet, but then she can also see that we can be part of the solution and that we can work with um, some really unusual um, stakeholders, I think, when it comes to solutions for climate change. But in in our industry, you know, we're stakeholders that it, it just makes sense for all of us to work together, right? To have these big Fortune 500 companies, right? Like put forth some resources and, you know, the space for us to be able to truly be part of the solution on the front end and not on the back end. The climate strikers being involved is a really interesting point. I mean, I keep harping on like one in seven American high school students has been on something that they consider a strike. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean when all those kids get in the workforce? Um, yeah. Yeah. But also, right, you mentioned CITUL, which is, is such a powerhouse now that, you know, they're trying to legally claim that it's a union and not a worker center anymore. <laughs> and you've also got the Awood Center with the, the Amazon workers who've been the first people to get Amazon to the bargaining table. I mean, you have a pretty 
yeah. impressive and, group of, of unions and worker centers out there. And Awood was co-founded by SEAU 26 and uh, CARE Minnesota. And that was, you know, seeing the work that Setul had done primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in the Latino community. Right. It was a feeling saying like, we really need this kind of organizing um, entity in the East African community. And it has blossomed into this incredible uh, pa- uh, fighting organization that is, and the frontline workers are Somali women. That's uh, right. you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and they are kicking ass. Yeah, and I find it really, you know, again, it's, it's interesting to look at these paths to power with the Oud Center particularly being, you know, prayer time. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, back to what you were saying about respect and also joyful lives, but just like the things that people will find to fight over. They're not always what we might think they would be. That's right. But they can be sources of, of really incredible power. And I think that's a, a wood I talk about too as a, a good lesson for the labor movement mm-hmm. where uh, a lot of folks years ago, when Setul's early days, labor folks would be like, why don't they just join a union, right? Which is a misunderstanding of like, of, of the contingent workforce that, that worker centers work in that uh, yeah. that are extremely difficult to organize. But also the fact that Awud is deeply centered in the East African community and with and imams are at the table and the mosques are players in the, in the fight, that is not incidental to its success. That is core to its success. Yeah. And that part of what we need to do is be working within communities and respectfully and, and for a, a community to say, to, you know, the, right, that, that was the issue that bubbled up because that's what was of concern to people. Right. And uh, and that's not necessarily, you know, that that's unions, you know, we tend to think of, of wages, benefits, health care, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, well, we need to we need to take on what is what is important to the workers. So you are, I'm talking to both of you, um, Javier, you are no longer at the union, but clearly still involved. But tell us about the transition. You sound like you've both been working together for a while. And yeah, what's sort of next once you win your next contracts for your 8,000 workers? You know, Javier took a while to transition us in, in a way that was as responsibly as he could, you know, um, so that like he met with all of us on staff and you know I know it was a, a big decision for him to step down being that this union is is what it is in large part because of his leadership and so you know when when he asked me to consider this and I was seriously considering it you know it was an honor to even just be considered as you mentioned I'd been with the union for for a while, have had actually hired me as his political director back in 2006. I had just come off of a, a, a pretty long political organizing dent, and then I, I'm really a community organizer. I chose that as my career after graduating from college. Um, and then, yeah, I've been with this union, the, with Local 26, since I was actually 26 years old. Um, and just I'm so proud of all of the work that we've been doing. Um, and I actually have a personal connection to the to the industry. Yeah. So my mother was the janitor of my school. Uh, she had come from Mexico, migrated from Mexico, and was educated. She was an accountant. Uh, but I remember clearly the very first time that I ever saw a, a janitor, you know, my mother, stand up to someone at the very top, like her boss's boss, was in April of 1998. I was mailed my acceptance letter to Cornell University. I went to the Ivy in upstate New York, and the superintendent got wind 
of my acceptance. And so he left his executive office, went to go find my mom in the hallway. And he asked her, why your daughter? And then my mom responded in her broken English, why not my daughter? And, um, you know, and that's just how I have been about lots of big things like, you know, a a janitor's daughter going to Cornell, like that's Mm -hmm. almost unheard of. Um, At least it was in my school. I was the first and only person to do it. But that's how I feel like we've been running the union and, and just embodies the workers that we represent. It's why not? Like we truly have not much to lose. Why not think so big about taking on really un- ginormous things like climate change, right? Like why not think about our workers and where are they going to live? I mean, they're whole people. And I just truly believe in my core that, you know, we have been running the union and I run this union, um, embodying the resilience of our of my community, of my mother who was a janitor, and of all of the workers who day in and day out do some really hard work. This is work that is not coveted, but we do it and we do it with a lot of pride and with a lot of dignity. I'd been leading the union for, for 14 years. And when I first became president of the of the union, I'd, I'd been an academic before. And I had a lot of qualms about like, why should I be leading this union? You know, I, I'm not a worker in the union. And I spoke with uh, Peter Ratcliffe, uh, a former colleague of mine who is uh, at McAllister. Uh, he's, a labor histor- he's a labor historian. And and I talked with him because I fully expected him to, to talk me out of becoming president of the union, which the, the union had been led by um, a, a very nice sort of German Minnesota grandpa. Uh, but he the, un- the demographics had changed dramatically. And he had not done anything to build leadership behind him, either staff or member leadership. And what my friend Peter said to me was like, well, you know, that it was that it was clear the international union was going to either bring someone in from another state or it'd be me. And he said, you know, it's clear it's going to be an outsider. And so maybe you should think about what kind of union do you want to build so that when you leave the the union doesn't have the same problem, that there that there are more leaders ready to step up. And that was kind of my North Star. I think that labor union president jobs tend to be pretty good jobs and people tend to not leave them. And I think that's a problem for the movement. You know, I think that that uh, as when we went through this transition process and our board at, at times were like very anxious and nervous. And I said, look, I when I started this job, the first four years, I felt like every day I was doing something that I'd never done before in my life. And that was scary as hell. But there's a creativity that comes with when you're making stuff up because you're doing it for the first time. And the union deserves that kind of creativity. Right. And I, I now know how to do this job. And so. So it was time for me personally, and I think it was time for the union to be, and you know, to have uh, new ideas and uh, and go in a, a new direction. I watched the the march from afar uh, on Monday, and just I'm I'm incredibly proud of the of the work. But I I think that the labor movement needs that kind of purposeful kind of regeneration to survive. And I would say that, you know, to with regard to the transition, you know sticking to local 26 kind of tradition is the e-board made history when they appointed me as the first Latina president of local 26. And so, and that's a big honor. I know that I, you know, have a a big, big mountain to climb still with, you know, having to land seven contracts, but I just, I can't imagine it any other way. And, you know, I, I'm just like, so, so honored to be like a worker of the workers. Right. Anything else people should know about your campaign or the scene in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the surrounding area? A big upcoming 
turning point for us is we have three of our major bargaining committees have voted to recommend to the membership that we take our strike vote. And so that is scheduled to happen on February 8th. So very soon. And, you know, that'll be a a big moment for us again. And it said, you know, just in taking it from a 40,000 step foot view, right, that that the work that's happening here is whether it's the Chicago teachers, the L.A. teachers and the, across the country, I think. And the St. Paul teachers. And the St. Paul, they're correct. Yeah. The St. Paul teachers, right, of course. <laughs> I didn't mention our own backyard. That folks are trying to think of bargaining differently. And we've been bargaining, kind of, we call it bargaining for the common good now, but we've been doing that for since before that uh, that term. But for us, it always came naturally because that's, you know, uh, the communities that our members come from, like we were at a disadvantage just of of getting the rest of the world to understand of uh, uh, our membership as whole human beings. And so it always made sense for us to, to involve deeply involve community. And, and But I think this is the key to the labor movement regrowing and, and, and becoming reborn in the U.S. And that was Javier Murillo, former president of SEIU Local 26, and Iris Altamirano, the new president of SEI Local 26. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for ARG is called The Working to Afford Childcare Conundrum in the Atlantic by Ashley Fetters. At the last debate among Democratic presidential candidates, you might have caught a few seconds of a discussion of an issue that has been generally overlooked in the campaign coverage so far, childcare. The U.S. stands alone among wealthy industrialized nations in failing to guarantee free or affordable universal childcare and paid parental leave. And as we noted in our earlier report on the Oxfam Inequality Study, gender inequality when it comes to care work for the family is a major hindrance to narrowing the gender wealth gap in the U.S. and to combating inequality in general. Ashley Fetters seized on a point made by Pete Buttigieg, the only candidate on stage who is in the age bracket in which childcare is perhaps most needed, about the absurdity of our current childcare system. He noted that parents work so that they can afford the daycare they need to be able to work. In other words, parents are stuck in a catch-22 in which the money that they earn by working outside the home ends up getting consumed by the cost of the daycare that cares for their kid while they are on the job. But Buttigieg's phrase, she writes, is a bit too neat. Quote, working to afford childcare in order to work is both a catchy, pithy description of a problem that has plagued working parents for decades and an oversimplification of it, unquote. It is true that the exorbitant cost of childcare, which can be as high as $26,000 a year for preschool in some areas, is a factor that discourages women's participation in the workforce. What's the point of paying someone else an arm and a leg to look after your kids so that you can hold down a job when you can just opt out of that job, theoretically, and look after your kid for free? But Fetters points out that for many, opting out, even if it is technically the more rational, cost-effective economic option, is an impossible choice. Quote, Buttigieg's catchy phrasing conveys what one might even say is the easiest version of this problem to solve. It implies a sort of perfectly symbiotic relationship between childcare and paid income, as if you could drop one and thus cancel the need for the other, when in reality, many couples need both. Quote, women, after all, work for reasons other than just to pay a daycare bill. And of course, it should be noted that single parents, who make up about a quarter of all parents in the U.S., especially lack this capacity to theoretically give up work and to parent full 
full time instead. Given that the vast majority of these parents are single mothers, the stigma surrounding taking time off to care for their children could become a pretext for discrimination and a major setback for career advancement. And remember that over the past quarter century of so-called welfare reform, it is our government that has been particularly anti-working moms. Many single mothers were actually pushed into the so-called work experience programs of welfare reform that actually compelled them in many cases to engage in extremely low-paid, burdensome work where their kids were sent to child care centers that were also, unsurprisingly, staffed by poor women. It's a game of musical chairs of poor mothers and poor children, all being kept quote-unquote busy by a welfare system that relentlessly drives them from the ranks of the jobless poor to the ranks of the working poor, and makes them suffer even more for it. Going back to the issue of child care, it is indeed ridiculously expensive. But the one-to-one -one equivalency of work and child care is the flip side of the why-can't-women-have-it-all debate. Asking whether women can be successful in their jobs and be successful parents is based on the premise that either one or the other of those is somehow discretionary. And it's a question virtually never asked of men. Our economy is structured in a way that often in a two-parent household, the mother may feel like it makes more sense for her to opt out of the workforce if the father is out there making more money. The overarching sexism in the economy drives them towards this choice. But in many cases, a working mother must shoulder the financial burden of childcare in addition to the social toll of gender discrimination and the gender pay gap in the workplace. Betts concludes with a policy insight. There are two ways to make childcare more accessible for working parents. The government can provide subsidies or tax credits for daycare services provided in the private sector, as we see today with many nonprofit daycare centers and Head Start centers, etc. Or the state can become the childcare provider, as we've seen in countries like Sweden, which has a robust publicly operated childcare program. And we've seen this in the U.S. to some extent in recent years with the expansion of universal pre-K programs. Both of those proposals might go a long way towards shrinking the burden of care. But a bigger issue that must be addressed is how the care burden is shared within families, and that is a product of both culture and policy. We also have to address how employers see the kinds of decisions that working mothers have to make every day about coping with work and childcare duties. Often it's not the decision of whether to work or whether to pay for daycare. It's about what else can I sacrifice in my life to ensure that those two essential pillars of my family are sustained. Centering family care as part of a struggle for economic and gender justice can ensure that employers and the government are responsible for answering to those two needs, instead of forcing parents to make an impossible choice between them. All parents deserve to have it all, no questions asked. This week, I have a somewhat unlikely pick. Well, at first, it might seem that way. It's a piece in the Financial Times by Bethan Staten, and it's titled The Upstart Unions Taking on the Gig Economy and Outsourcing. Within it, though, you'll find some familiar names from some of my recent coverage of labor in London. The piece is a deep dive into the new organizing happening in the UK, and it's a great read. Just start off at the beginning. It reads, quote, Loretta Yunsi had been working as a cleaner at St. Mary's Hospital in central London for 12 years when she joined a, a new union and organized her first strike. For nine days in October last year, she and her colleagues, who were employees of outsourcing firm Sodexo, stood in front of the hospital with a banner reading, We are not the dirt we clean. They beat drums and used a megaphone to denounce low wages, turning the protest into a party with food and music. Then they crashed a board meeting to insist on their demands. We had to knock and knock. No one paid 
paid attention to us, she says. But if you make a big noise, they have to hear you. The cleaners at St. Mary's are members of United Voices of the World, a new trade union of mostly precariously employed migrant workers at the heart of a movement disrupting labor organizing. Their demonstration was a typical UVW action, jubilant, noisy, confrontational, and uncompromising, led by workers at the sharp end of insecure, low-waged employment. End long quote. Those workers succeeded in getting a raise to the London living wage, and they're waiting for a decision on their main demand, which is to become directly hired employees of the National Health Service. UVW is a sister union to one you've heard about a few times on this podcast, the Independent Workers of Great Britain. And while the big unions in the UK have struggled in similar ways to the big unions in the US much of the past several years, these unions are finding ways to organize the workers considered unorganizable. The article notes UVW and IWGB have adapted their tactics for this precarious workforce. They run breakfast stalls where cleaners can drink coffee and meet colleagues when they finish a shift at 7 a.m. Meetings feature not just union business, but language classes, childcare, music, food, games, and legal clinics. Strike action is colorful and loud, usually with a soundtrack of Latin American music and flares of red smoke. Speeches, casework, and community activities are done in both English and Spanish, and members are encouraged to get active and lead campaigns quickly. End quote. The article also notes that existing unions find these upstart, their word, unions somewhat threatening and criticize their willingness to strike and take risks rather than focus on winning recognition agreements. But IWGB's Jason Moyerly, who you've heard from recently on Belabored, cites Justice for Janitors as an inspiration, and Jamie Woodcock, yep, you've heard from him too, told the FT he thinks of unions such as UVW as laboratories sorry, I had to get British there, where members can take risks and challenge the status quo. Obviously, you've heard from these folks, all of them, because I think their work is worth repeatedly covering. This article indicates that it's not just little lefty magazines and labor podcasts who are paying attention. No less than the Financial Times also thinks this is a story worth keeping up with. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on legislative staffers organizing, building service workers and migrant workers fights, labor law changes, and sports unions. Thank you again to Dissent, as always, for hosting us, and Natasha Lewis, as always, for editing us and making us sound good every single week. That thanks to you for listening, and even more thanks to you if you've rated us on iTunes, shared us with your friends, promoted us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever social media you happen to be on, or generally propagandized on our behalf. An extra special thanks to our belabored sustaining members. You can donate three, five, ten dollars a month. Just five dollars a month gets you an excellent belabored tote bag. We also have some fabulous new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can also always make a one time donation. We appreciate all of your money and all of your love. You can find out more about all of that at descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership. You can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you're a basketball player or a cleaning services worker, a political staffer, or a new parent juggling childcare with work. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. We are going to be taking a little break for the month of February while we focus on a few projects, but we will be back in March, and we're planning some exciting content for the spring, including another visit to the Labor Notes Conference this April. You can find out more about that and everything else at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. And until then, solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.